Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, uh, today, if you want to grab a Bible and kind of get set where we're going to go, we're going to be in Revelation 11, which is a daunting task anytime you jump into a book like Revelation and you talk about politics at the same time. You know, that, that's two things you just don't do. So we're going to do that today. We're going to see how that works out, and hopefully you guys come back or you continue to connect online. But as we jump into this political season, as the rhetoric engages, as the division seems to happen, as Christians, we need to know how to engage in a way that reflects who we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of heaven. The values that we are operated by are not just our amendments or our constitution. We have something that trumps that. It's called the Word of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have to sometimes surrender to our ultimate allegiance, which is Christ. And as we engage in a political season, what I tend to find is the rhetoric just continues to go up. The promises get greater and greater, and often what happens in strange ways, you'll see this from the beginning of our nation all the way till today, we associate with America values and promises that the Bible associates with Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so we'll say things like, America is the city on a hill, or America is the hope for the world. And it's not to be unpatriotic, but as Christians, we have to be careful where we place our hope the kind of rhetoric that we raise up, and certainly with candidates, they raise up their platforms to the, to almost to a divine level. And we find this rhetoric that just gets people frantic and anxious, fearful. Fearful because some people will say, well, if this person gets elected, then you know the place is going to fall apart. Things are going to go to anarchy, or if this person gets elected, it's going to go this direction. And every single election season, we hear the same thing, don't we? This is the most important election of our lifetime. I think I heard that in 2016, maybe it was 2012, 2008. And as we go back, we continue to ramp up the rhetoric. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to be careful the kind of language we use because the next generation of Christians is watching us. And I don't know if there's anything that is dividing Christians more or causing many to walk away from the church than the language that we use, the rhetoric we use, the misappropriation of values that we have as younger Christians look at us as older Christians and they wonder, where is this vitriol coming from? Where is this anger coming from? The world is watching us and we represent a king who is willing to set aside all the glory that he had in heaven to become a human being, and not just any human being, but a servant, to die on the cross for us. The life of Jesus and the message of the gospel is the means that we move out into the world. And as we engage in politics, we need to keep the first things first so that we don't find ourselves as the church ramped up looking just like the world. You know, a Republican Christian should look very different from a Republican. A Democrat who is a Christian look, should look very different in terms of how they engage from simply a Democrat because we are Christians first, Americans second, and what other else follows third, fourth, or fifth. And so as we jump into this today, we want to discover what it looks like for us 
as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ to move out into the world with the most important message, which is the message of the gospel, representing our God and our values, our convictions, certainly voting and engaging in ways that bring about those values, but recognizing the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ comes first. I heard this quote this week I want to share with you. It said, all, all evil comes from worshiping that which we ought to use and using that which we ought to worship. Evil comes from worshiping that which we ought to use and using, like things like God, that which we ought to worship. For how we respond in this time, and certainly how you respond immediately after an election will tell you a lot about where you're anchoring your hope. You know, I remember in elections past, uh, watching those of a, a different generation, older generation, and a certain president was elected, and there'd be tears in their eyes. They'd be so overwhelmed because the election did or did not turn in the direction that they hoped. How are you going to respond the day after the election? Some of us may celebrate to say, hey, it's finally done, but often our hopes are so connected and so tied in that we're not recognizing that that hope breaks our allegiance with Christ and we want to put Christ first. So as we jump into this, one of the things I want to talk about is the kingdom of God, which is our future hope. And then we're going to jump back into Revelation chapter 11. So first of all, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we know this well. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. See, what is the kingdom of God? How does the kingdom of God operate and work? When Jesus came, he said, and this is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, and he said, repent. And why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, other translations will say the kingdom of God is near, that with the coming of Jesus, God's kingdom, his rule and reign, is being established. Now, Jesus had this interesting conversation with the Pharisees. You may check it out in Luke chapter 7, and the Pharisees are asking, hey, you talk about the kingdom, but I'm not seeing it. I see the Romans are still ruling. I see we are oppressed. See, the Pharisees believe when the kingdom came, all things would be made right. And Jesus is saying, no, that kingdom is here. And they said, but I don't see it present. And in Luke 7, verse 21, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And why? Because the king has come. And with Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God has begun in principle. The challenge is we don't see it. We don't see it in the politics of the world. Nation still fights against nation. There is still unrest. There is discord. And yet the kingdom has come. Now, that kingdom has first come in us as those who surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. But when we talk about the kingdom, Matthew says it's the kingdom of heaven. And when you think of heaven, sometimes we think of a place or a location that we will go, but heaven is God's presence. And see, when God's presence comes, it heals things. When you pray for someone to be healed, what are you asking? You're asking for the fullness of God's presence to cover them and to bring that which will come in the future into the present. Because see, when God's presence comes and his presence covers the earth, Scripture says, as the water covers the sea, all things will be made whole. 
There'll be no more warring against nation, no more infighting, no more physical brokenness, no more hunger, no more pain. For the old order of things will pass away, and behold, God says, I will make all things new. God's presence heals. God has begun to heal us spiritually, but the kingdom isn't fully complete. It's not fully here. And we know that, right? In Matthew 6.10, it says, we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see, as the church, we represent, we are an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. We represent that kingdom, and it's our responsibility to bring the values and the influences of the kingdom of God to bear in this cultural moment, to engage in ways that reflect allegiance to our king and not just allegiance to a party, or to a nation, but rather to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the one that we worship and the one that we adore. So we live in this strange time, and you'll find this in Scripture. We live between this already kingdom, but not yet. That Christ is here, but it's not complete. Sometimes Scripture will say we live in this present evil age, and yet this present evil age has been invaded by the King and the King of kings. Because, see, in the past, in Genesis, we surrendered our authority to the dominion of darkness. And that's why scripture says we've been rescued out of the dominion of darkness and rescued into the kingdom of light. That when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just I didn't follow the rules. What it describes in scripture is they have surrendered their authority to another God. And that God is described in scripture. You'll find this as the prince of the world, the God of the age. When Jesus Christ came, he's reestablishing his kingdom, meaning those of us who belong to him are now his agents in the world to bring about light and truth and justice and goodness and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all that good stuff as representatives of his kingdom. Church, as we engage in this cultural moment, are we engaging as Americans? Are we simply engaging as conservative or liberal, or are we first engaging as agents of the kingdom of God, a God who's come to restore, to bring peace, to bring life? Now, why is that kingdom delaying? I want to turn to a couple passages before we go to Revelation 11. First passage is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Why has the kingdom not come? Why is it not here in completion? It says, the Lord is not slow... To fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is calling men and women to himself. He's calling every nation to himself so that when the king comes, there'll be every tribe, every tongue, every language that is worshiped, uh, worshiping around his throne. It's our time as the church to carry the gospel into the world. But could it be that the way we engage in politics is keeping people from hearing and seeing the good news? Not because we shouldn't engage. Don't hear me on that. It's important. It's valuable. But sometimes we have greater allegiances that trump the message of Jesus, and the world has a hard time seeing it or hearing it. And yet this is the time that God is calling men and women to himself. You know, it says in Romans 8 that creation right now, it's groaning. It cannot wait for the king to come 
and for the sons and the daughters of God to be revealed. And I wonder if some of that groaning isn't evident in how we do politics. I don't know that just creation groans. I think nations groan. I think as we see division, there's groaning in that. We want to see a unity. And and Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, Father, may they be one as we are one. I and you and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity. Church, why? What's at stake? That the world may know that you have sent me. When we allow political temporal divisions to come in the body of Christ and to divide us, we have lost our mission, we have lost our identity, we have lost our role in the world. And in the church, we should have the kind of ethic and kind of love for one another that we can actually talk about this and talk about it passionately and disagree with each other, but to know that Christ is what binds us together. And as we move out into the world, we have to move out in that unity so that when people look at the church, they say, you know what? They don't always vote the same. They certainly don't always look the same. They don't always, but they worship the same. They live the same. And there's an ethic in their life that reveals something that's greater than this world. Church, that's our calling as we engage in this cultural moment. Are we more stirred by the rhetoric of politics or are we captivated by the rhetoric of our king? So let's jump in. I know it was a long introduction, but let's jump in as we look at Revelation chapter 11 and pick this up. Now, why Revelation 11? Because, see, this is the moment in Revelation. It's kind of the hinge point where the king is established and his kingdom begins to reign. You know, this is where Handel gets his great lyrics, that he shall reign forever and ever. And the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his anointed, of Christ. And so in Revelation 11, this great day has come. And so we want to discover where history is headed. What is the ultimate future? Because what we need to do is to bring the future into the present. That's what Christians are supposed to be good at. We're going to talk about this. We bring the values of what is most real into the present, and it directs and engages how we live. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 11, I'll pick it up in verse 15. The word of the Lord. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones fell before God on their faces, and they worshiped him, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then... God's temple in the heaven was open. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. When you hear that language of lightning, rumblings, thunders, earthquakes, hail, that's what happens when the eternal touches the temporal. We quake. You see it in John in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1 where John falls at Jesus' feet as though dead because the eternal has come in contact with the temporal. And this theophany, this image of God comes and all of creation quakes before the glory 
of the king. And you see this great song, the 24 elders, which in some ways represents the church. This is our song. What are we going to be singing when Christ comes? Here's the song, the kingdom of the world. So notice all the kingdoms of the world, all the politics of the world have become the politics of the king. So the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And now he shall reign forever and ever. At that moment, the politics of the world become the politics of the king. We live by the politics of the king today. We live in light of the future, which, as we're going to discover, is more real than the present. But is the future more real to your emotions, to your mind, to your politics than the reality of the present? We are so caught up in the rhetoric of today. So many of us are listening to Fox News way too much, to CNN way too much. I'm going to be on both sides, guys. MSNBC, what do you got? We listen to the rhetoric of our day and our emotions, our intellect, our guidance, our behavior, our attitudes are in line and in step with the values of our day. We have to turn it off and listen to the values of our king, the one who is going to transform all nations and all politics and have all nations and politics and all people worshiping around his throat, saying the one politic that matters, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the movement of human history. And the story of Christianity is the story of history. It's the story of where things are headed and what is going to take place. So we see four things. There's four realities that are going to happen when Christ comes back. Now, the first is that he's going to take his reign and his power. We're going to see this in verse 17. The second is the nations, and that includes us, guys, the nations will cease to rage. The third thing we'll see is the saints will be rewarded. The destroyers will be destroyed. But finally, and we see this in verse 19, God himself will be with us. So let's kind of walk through that. And as we do, we're going to take a pause in a moment to apply what it's saying to our, to our present moment. So first of all, verse 17. The first thing we see is that Jesus will take his power and he will begin to reign. Verse 17 saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And notice the language, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Now, normally in Revelation, God is described as the one who is and who was. And how does it end? And who is to come. Now, why is there no who is to come? Because in Revelation 11, he's come. You don't call the one who is to come who's here. He's here. The seventh trumpet is the final trumpet. It's the trumpet of completion. The seven angels sounding this final trumpet. And his authority and reign has come. And he is reigning over all things and taking claim of that which belongs to him. From the furthest galaxy to the authority of our own lives and our hearts. All in, synch in synchronous worship to him. And so if this is where the future is headed, if this is where human history is headed, is the church living in line with that moment? There's a word I want to teach you. It took me a while to understand it, so I understand that it's somewhat strange, but it's the word proleptic. Have you heard that term? Sometimes we use it when I yell at my kids, and I'll say, hey, guys, I'm already in the car, even though I'm upstairs still getting ready. I'm saying to them, you need to move. You need to get there. I'm already in the car waiting for you, even though I'm still in the house. Why do we say that? Because that's where we're directed. That's where we're moving. We're moving in the reality of what is 
and not in the reality of what you think is important. Well, see, proleptic living means the future should direct our reality today. The future is God's reign, his kingdom, his values. The way that we're going to live when his kingdom is established, we live today on the basis of what is most real. And what is most real of that is that which is coming. Christians have always been odd in the world because they live according to the future. And see, the values of scripture only make sense if you understand that Christians are living according to a future kingdom that will be established and completed when Christ returns. Because think about some of the values that we have as Christians. Jesus said, Luke 6, 27, but I say to you, here's how we are to be different. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If all we have is today, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because those who love their enemies are probably going to be taken, taken advantage of. Loving those who persecute you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. I don't see many meek inheriting the earth today. Those values only make sense because we're living today in light of what will be true, what is true, what is ultimately true because Jesus Christ has died and he has risen again. And so Christians have always lived and marched and believed by the reality of that greater vision of human history. And it's given them great courage, but also humility in the hardest moments of life. When you look at Christian history and you look at how the saints have stood in some of the most difficult moments of life, how did they stand? Not because everything in front of them was good. Not because they even saw a hope for things to change in the next five to 10 years. They had a vision of the future, a vision of their king and of the values of their king that infused their present moment with greater meaning and understanding than they could possibly have imagined if they hadn't seen it. We are to live today according to the values of our king, which is going to come. He's going to come and reign over all things. So why are we so frustrated and anxious today? You know, it's interesting, uh, yesterday I was here, I was working on some things, and I kept hearing all this honking. And I thought, man, did I miss a parade? I mean, was there a party that I, I missed, and I'm missing out on this? And so I kept hearing it, and I kind of walked over to the windows, and I saw here at 74 and 65 where the two, the two meet. There was a, a bunch, of, bunch of people just cheering on their candidate, right? They had the signs up. They were excited. They were waving their arms. And I could not help but see an image of worship. An image of excitement. They want their candidates to be enthroned. Why? Because when their candidate is enthroned, all things are going to be made right. There will be peace on earth and the lion will lie down with the lamb and the cobra and the asp and the little baby and all that. There is this hope that is so attached to our politics. And I could not help but thinking and watching those people and their excitement, hey, good for them for being out there and supporting their candidate. But within all of us is a longing for the true king and the righteous kingdom. And all our frustration in politics in part is because they will never match up. They will never reach the fullness of the glory of the king that we worship. And again, that doesn't mean we don't, we don't engage, but it's an act of worship. And the frustration comes up between Republican, Democrat, between nations, because we're not going to get it right completely. And I think we've got a pretty good system. Our system of government is a good system, and yet it's run by people like us. And we fight for ourselves. 
We tend to oppress those who are different than us. It takes us a while to learn to listen. And yet we long for a king that will establish a kingdom that brings peace and justice to the land. I think we're frustrated because in the end, we know where history is headed and we long for that day to come. We are also frustrated because the reality is, as human beings, we're just not great at ruling. It's been a bad day for kings and presidents and even the best among us. And think about us. Some of you, you're the best among us. How well do you rule? How well do you reign? Whether it's in your home or over your business, over your finances, all of us, are, we know we're selfish. We fight for ourselves. We fight for our own. And yet the King of kings and the Lord of lords that will reign over all peoples and all nations, he has a greater value, a deeper heart a greater longing. We recognize the anxiety of this day because we're going to put somebody in charge who's like us. <laughs> and we long for the perfect king. See, Revelation 11 is telling us this is the king who will come and he will establish his kingdom. Now, second, verse 18, not only will he come and establish his kingdom, but the nations will cease to rage. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Now, the nations are raging against each other, but ultimately the fight between Republican and Democrat is a fight between the nations and Jesus. The reality is that Jesus is in authority over all things. He is king. And this raging that we see is not just a temporal thing. It's not an earthly thing. There is a spiritual dynamic, and this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2. Chapter 2. There's not chapters, are there? It's just Psalm 2. Anyway. Psalm 2 is what is called a messianic psalm. It's a prediction of what will happen when Christ comes. And this is how Psalm 2 begins. Psalm 2, verse 1. Great question. Hey, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together. But notice, they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. The conflict we feel is the conflict between every nation and the king of kings. Because the reality is every nation worships, worships false gods. I know that we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but a nation cannot be fundamentally Christian. What does it mean to be Christian? It means to have the spirit within you, right? It means the surrender to Jesus as your Lord. We can be influenced by Christian values. But what he's describing is the ultimate rage is every nation, every nation, every political system raises up false gods. And those false gods compete against the ultimate God. Now, in our nation, they may be good things. They may be excellent things, things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And within our nation, we have two political parties, and what are they fighting about? Ultimately, are they not fighting about liberties? Isn't one party saying that I believe these people should have these liberties? We believe corporations should have the liberty to do with their resources what they want. One party says that. The other party says, no, 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 no. You guys are getting it wrong. We need to limit corporations and limit their freedoms, and we need to use their resources in this direction. Some people say we believe that Americans should have freedom to use their reproductive systems however they want. The other side says, no, 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 that's going to lead the long direction. We want to limit those freedoms. We believe they should have these freedoms. There should be individual responsibilities. Guys, that's what's matter. Others say, no, there's systemic problems in our country, and we need to control those systemic problems. Do you see what's happening? What are they arguing about? They're arguing about liberties. 
on the left and on the right, they are more similar than you could possibly imagine because their foundation is the same. They're not arguing about the king. They're not arguing about worship. They're not arguing about the values of that king. They're arguing about liberties and the way to run our nation in a way that brings the best for human flourishing. The beginning of the kingdom is not liberty. It's in the beginning God. And God created the heavens and the earth. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. When we talk about Christianity and politics, they're two very, very different things. Now, Christians engage in politics and we play in that sphere. And yet the beginning of the politics and the politics of the kingdom is that Jesus is Lord. And there's a sense in which we rage against the king when we elevate our politics above our allegiance to God. Because every nation raises up false gods. And every nation thinks their gods are the right ones, right? And the reality is, as Christians, we have to raise up our king above the gods of the nations. And the truth is, when you go back and you look at how Christians vote and what actually influences what we say and what we do often are very different. There was a, a poll in 2016 that they took Christians and they said, well, what was most important to you? What were the gods that you worshiped as you went in and as you engaged and as you vote? In 2016, the Pew Research Group did a study of those who were self-professed Christians, and they said there were two issues that were most important to us in 2016, national security, self-protection, and the economy. What are the values that should move us out to vote and to engage? Are they the values of the kingdom? Are we possibly raising up false gods? We're not being unpatriotic by worshiping Jesus and raising those values up, but we have to evaluate what drives us to the decisions that we make. And I don't know if you realize this, nations need to protect themselves. Christians shouldn't. Self-protection for a Christian is the opposite of the life of Jesus. Think of the life of Jesus. Jesus opened himself up to suffering. To death Now, purposely, to fulfill a mission. But Jesus was not about self-protection. Jesus was about moving people to see the value of the kingdom and the glory of the gospel. The nations will cease to rage when the politics of the world become the politics of our king. Third thing is the saints will be rewarded. The destroyers will be destroyed. See, this is a picture of justice. Verse 18, the nations rage, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is a picture of justice. And in the end, what is politics about? It's about justice in the world. Regardless of what side we are on politically, governments should be just and they should administer a just society. And we have differences of agreement when it comes to what justice looks like and what areas that justice should, find, should fall. But when the kingdom comes, it says, first, the saints will be rewarded. And let's remind ourselves, why are the saints the saints? The truth is, it's not because we're saintly. It's because the one who is holy has been sacrificed for us that his righteousness covers our unrighteousness. He has given us a new heart. He has placed his Holy Spirit within us. And the reason we're rewarded is not because we've done all things right, but, but, but because we're covered by the one who is right. 
And as we move out into the world, we're rewarded because we're living according to the future. We're living according to the values of the kingdom and we're not living for self, but dying to self. And in the future, the kingdom is gonna be a kingdom of generosity. We should be generous today. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus said, you've done these unto the least of these, he's talking about those who are naked, those who are hungry, those without a home, because the values of the kingdom, the values of God will solve those issues, those physical issues, those political issues, as his goodness covers the earth, all things are made whole. Saints, are we living according to the future or are we just enjoying the present? We should enjoy life, but we should always know where life is headed and live according to that day. Because also the justice will come, the destroyers will be destroyed, and the reality is the church is a part of that. Now what do I mean? The church has been used and, and the name of Christ has been used in horrible ways to bring about disastrous results in the name of Jesus. The history of the church is not a history of doing the right things for the right reasons. Often our idols, our idols take control and we move out into the world in ways that kill and steal and destroy and do not reflect. Let's not do that in this moment. We can't change the past, but we can in this moment choose to move out into the world in a way that puts Christ first and his values first. This is the value of our king and his kingdom. And here's the final reality. Christ will take his power. He will take his throne. The nations will cease to rage. The saints will be rewarded. The destroyers will be destroyed. But here's the good news. And here's what's amazing about the gospel and the kingdom. It's not just about rules. It's not just about a benevolent king. It's about adoption. It's about salvation that we get to reign with Christ, not simply as subjects, but as sons and daughters who have been adopted by the king. Watch this last verse, verse 19. And then God's temple in heaven, so meaning in his presence, notice this language, this is remarkable, was opened. And John is describing this, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. I don't know if you realize that's not something you're supposed to see. There's layers of protection, there are courts, there are processes, there are sacrifices. And John is saying when the king comes, the presence of God has been unleashed and we see into the very holy of holies. And there was rumblings of lightning, pearls of thunder, earthquakes. See, here's the good news. When the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ, God will be with us. Emmanuel will reign. That is where history's headed. So do we want to be with him today? You know, so often I wonder if we're just trying to represent him, but we really don't want to be with him. We represent his values, but do we want to be one who is experiencing his heart, his presence, his love? Church, the only way we're gonna be a solution in this world is we have to recognize what Christ has opened up for us. That we today can dwell in the very holy of holies. And we are not afraid, but we come with confidence. Why? Because we approach a throne of grace knowing that God doesn't accept me on the basis of what I've done. And I've done a lot of messed up stuff. 
God accepts me on the basis of what Christ has done, and he welcomes me as his son. And when the king of the universe, the one who rules over all things, the ones that will cause the nations to cease to raise, when you realize that's the one that welcomes you and loves you as a community, our first priority is to move one another towards Christ. As disciples, our first job is to be with Jesus. Before we go out and do what Jesus did, we have to be a community who seeks to be with him. And I wonder... I wonder if that's not our true passion and our frustration in this day is we want that. Now, we want that in our politicians. We want them to be that for us. We want them to bring peace. We want them to bring joy. We want them to bring righteousness and justice. We want that, and that's a good pursuit, but it's only ultimately found in the presence of God and by being with him as a community, as two or more gathered, and we are in his presence. But if that's where the future is headed, are we there today? Are we listening more to the reality of the present that the present seems more real in the presence of God? Is it more compelling to engage in yet another political debate than to get into the word of God, to find yourselves in community with others, to find yourselves even repenting to others and saying, guys, you know, in this political season, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I'm ticked, I'm mad. That's okay. But we bring that before a king that can restore us and change us. Are we doing that as a church? If the church isn't being with God, we're going to be a mess when it comes to representing God. Do you hear me on that? And I'm referring to myself as well. That as a community, our first priority as those who are kingdom-minded is to be with him. And in being with him, that's where the change happens. We have to be honest with each other. We have to be honest with God. We have to repent and say, Father, I think some of the values of the world are getting too important. The gods of my nation are rising above and having greater ascendancy than over you. And then we have to move out into the world in a way that reflects the future and not just our present church. This is our time. God has called us for a moment like this. But are we willing to be with him, to seek him first, to put that as our first pursuit and allow God to guide us when it comes to the rest? Hey, next week, we're going to look at the role of government. Then we're going to look at how Christians take their values and move out. But let's begin by setting our eyes on the king and his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your truth. You remind us that you did not give us what we deserve. Father, every day of life, every time I come to the word, every time I gather and worship, I'm reminded you did not give me what I deserve. And the hardships of life, even the hardships of life are infinitesimally small compared, Lord, to the reality that we should have been cast out of your presence. And yet you have given us by grace and mercy what we do not deserve, which is adoption, love, security, an eternal reality that you are king. And Father, we can come into your presence. And sometimes, Lord, it's the stuff of the earth. It's the stuff of the temporal moment that's keeping us from you. May we persevere. May we persevere, Father, in this day to such a degree that we're willing and we're hungry for righteousness. We're hungry for your presence. And as a community, Father, would you help us to love each other well, to move each other well in a direction that leads us towards you. We need you, Father. We need your presence. We need your healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. And some of us, Father, simply need to say today, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
Father, I come with nothing in my hand. I recognize my sinfulness, my brokenness, that Christ died on the cross for me. Recognize that he rose again, giving me new life, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all politics and nations and issues. And he is my hope. May we cry out, Father, accept me on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. And may we move out into the world in a way that reflects what Christ has done. Father, we love you. Help us and help our nation. Be with our president and our leaders. Guide us into all truth, we ask in Jesus' name.